How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're taking a look into the clothes that people wear with executives from two iconic apparel makers, Levi's and Patagonia. American consumers these days often want to know about the social and environmental impact of the products they buy, where it was made, what materials were used, the impact on their personal health and the health of the planet. Transparency is an expectation, especially among young consumers, that companies covet. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what the global clothing industry is doing to come clean and reduce its carbon footprint. Along the way, we'll have questions from our live and well-clothed audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Uh, This program is underwritten by Blue Sky. We're pleased to have with us Chip Berg, the CEO and president of Levi Strauss & Company, and Rick Ridgway, Vice President for Environmental Affairs at Patagonia. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thanks for coming, both of you. Uh, Chip Berg, take us through the life of a pair of blue jeans, from uh, you know cotton in the field to they go into a consumer's closet. You know, Levi's has been a leader in sort of measuring and understanding the full life cycle of the products it makes. That's right. Um, <clears throat> making a pair of jeans, as I've come to discover over the last 18 months, is actually a pretty complex process, uh, going all the way back to the cotton that's grown. And one of the things about this company is we are heavily dependent on cotton. About 95% of all of the product that we sell is cotton-based. Um, we also take the manufacturer of our product very, very seriously, uh, and its sustainability impact. Um, and we're a big believer in having it underpinned by science. Um, one of the things that we did a couple of years ago is a full life cycle analysis of where energy and where water is consumed through the life cycle of a pair of jeans. And uh, a couple of fun facts out of that. First of all, 60% of the energy is actually used once the consumer has the product in their in their wardrobe, in their closet. So a big chunk of the energy is consumed by the consumer. Uh, The second big fun fact is um, because we're so uh, dependent on cotton, uh, about 50% of the water use happens before the product ever winds up in a pair of jeans. It happens in the growing of the cotton itself. Um, The other 45% of cotton, uh, of water use, happens once it's in the consumer's home. About 5% is within our direct control. So we've put a lot, based on that science, we've put a lot of effort into uh, educating the consumer and working with our suppliers in the supply chain to really tackle the opportunity to uh, make a more positive impact on the world uh, and you know, make an impact from a sustainability standpoint. And part of that is washing <coughs> jeans less frequently, right? So getting, which I, I don't know how that went over in your house, but yeah. Um, yeah, so I've got a, a little story on that. Um, well, two stories. Um, first of all, are there any real denim heads? I call them denim heads, like real hardcore denim people in the audience. Do you guys wash your jeans at all? 
<laughs> so true denim heads will never people. put their jeans in a pair in, into a washing machine. Um, they might spot clean it with uh, with a washcloth or a toothbrush or something, but um, I've heard of people put them in the freezer to kill. Is it? Yeah, no. Yeah, some people do. Um, okay. Uh, the other the other story, and I told you this uh, when we talked earlier. Um, we actually uh, engage consumers, but also our own employees with challenges. And we ran a challenge uh, back in the springtime, challenging our employees, and, and we've got 17,000 employees around the world, to wear one pair of jeans or one pair of dockers for a week without washing them. And I know it sounds gross. I'm thinking but that's you know not what? that long. It, <laughs> it's not that long, and it's easily doable. And uh, it, 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 it taught a lot of people about the real feasibility of doing that. And um, so that's part of it's about engaging in a two-way dialogue and continuing to educate the consumer on how they can make a difference with their own practices. Rick Ridgway, uh, Patagonia is a leader in that kind of engagement with its customers uh, in some ways that are kind of scary for companies. You actually include customers in conversations about the products you make, uh, whether uh, Patagonia should continue uh, making a jacket uh, that has a waterproof substance that's quite toxic. Um, why do you do that? Well, a few years ago, we um, realized just as the recession was starting to hit hard, that there was a shift in consumption uh, going on, just amongst a small group of people, but we felt it was a potentially really important shift where people were reacting to hard times by investing in uh, more expensive products that would last a longer time, that they were recognizing that value proposition. So we wanted to engage with those people. Those were, those were our, our folks. <laughs> we make really good stuff. It lasts a long time. Uh, it's an investment. So we thought, how can we engage with them in a way that might, you know, actually leverage this idea further? And we decided we needed to do it in a, in a partnership with them. And as we started to think more about how engaging around quality products is a real way to, with our customers, uh, join them in figuring out how to lower the impact of the stuff that's in our lives, we, we also realized that that's just a small part of it, that we needed to engage with our customers over, as Chip just said, the full life cycle of our products. So whether uh, or not you buy a quality product or whether you buy anything at all in the first place is just step one. Once you do make the decision to buy it, then we wanted to encourage our customers to use it as much as they could for as long as they could. We want to encourage them to uh, repair it if it's broken, and then we want to help them fix it. So we really repaired our repair facility. And since we launched this initiative called Common Threads, this partnership with our customers, that repair facility has more than doubled uh, its business, as it were. We also want to encourage people to clean out their closets and their garages and take the clothes that are in there that they're no longer using and put them back in circulation. So to make that easier, we formed a partnership with eBay to uh, create a storefront, as it were, on eBay, where uh, if you took a pledge towards mutual responsibility for your stuff, uh, your Patagonia product would go in this storefront on eBay, and uh, it would be a storefront that would allow you to tell more stories about your product and maybe enhance the value that way. But also, most importantly, we would co-list your product on Patagonia.com and give you double the eyeballs. 
that's gone really well. The amount of Patagonia products on eBay since we launched has, has also more than doubled. Uh, and then finally, we wanted to encourage people to uh, take this, their clothes when they're really worn out at the end of their life and bring them back to us, and we'll use the best technology available to, uh, to recycle them. So that's the Common Threads partnership. Uh, we put the pledge out on our website a year ago. We've got uh, about 60,000 people now that have taken that pledge and join us in this mutual responsibility part. And the most controversial part of this is, is the the decision whether to buy anything in the first place or not. And to launch this partnership a year ago, we took out a, a full-page ad in the New York Times, which I know a lot of you guys probably saw. Um, it was uh, on Black Friday. And when we called up the New York Times to reserve the space for the ad, they got all excited because they thought they had a new advertising customer. And they were kind of shocked when they got the ad because it had a picture of our best-selling jacket and then in bold headline above it said, don't buy this jacket. <laughs> and then under it was a message about what consumption is doing to our planet and how, you know, if we go from seven to nine billion people in the next 40 years, and if the affluence of those people grows 3% per annum compounded, that we're going to go from our current overreach of using one and a half planets a year to support our human society, to five or seven planets. And you don't need to be a businessman to know, you don't need an MBA to know that that's bankruptcy. And that's what the copy said underneath. So we were encouraging people to begin to think about consumption, to begin to think about whether you need to buy anything at all in the first place. And a lot of people took us up on that, you know. But a lot of people... <laughs> so are we, you saying that, that sales of those jackets went down? Or people say, well... No, I'm they kind of stayed the same, which was really interesting. Okay. So some people took us up on it. Some thought they were so stoked about, uh, you know, the moxie of a company telling people not to buy it, that they would buy it. And sure enough, a lot of people said, you guys are the biggest hypocrites on the planet. Like, like this is the most clever reverse psychology ad that's ever been done. But so, we were, we're, we're serious about this topic. So, Chip Burke, sustainable consumption, is, is that an oxymoron? Can we buy our way to a lower carbon, less impactful future? Or are there inherent tensions in consumption uh, and the constraints that uh, Rick was just talking about? Well, as, as Rick was talking, I was thinking to myself, <clears throat> right down the street in our headquarters, we've got the vault where we've got the oldest pair of jeans on the face of the planet, and it's about 140 years old. So when you talk about quality product. I mean, it is one of the things that, that this company and this brand really stand for. And, and like Patagonia, we put a lot of emphasis on what to do at the end of the usable life cycle of a pair of jeans with consumers. We run almost 3,000 stores around the world. But the biggest store in the United States is probably Goodwill selling Levi's because we encourage consumers to recycle jeans and, you know, donate them to Goodwill, and we've got a partnership that we work with with Goodwill. And it speaks to, you know, the usable life cycle of the product. So I do think there's an inherent tension because, obviously, businesses are in business to sell product. But I think it comes down to, again, working with consumers, having that two-way dialogue with consumers where we educate them that while it may be at the end of your usable life in your closet for your wardrobe, there's a need for the product out there somewhere. And if the genes are literally to the point where they're not usable anymore, we also have a program where we recycle genes into insulation. So part of my house is actually insulated with denim. 
Does that cheapen your brands to have to promote the sort of these sort of later in the life cycle uh, use of your products? I don't think so at all. I think it actually enhances the brand value because it does speak to it speaks to the quality and the long term value of of, of our brand and um, and I think you know at least many consumers feel good about the fact that they're extending the use of a pair of jeans even if it may no longer fit into their wardrobe. And, um, and that's why we have consumers who will, you know, donate jeans to Goodwill. We also run programs in some markets overseas where if you bring in a pair of jeans, we'll give you a credit towards a new pair, and then we take care of the recycling. Patagonia and Levi's are both privately owned companies. Levi's has some publicly traded debt. So other company, other CEOs would uh, have different pressures, quarterly profits. They've got to make their quarterly numbers. that kind of drive. So don't you have a luxury of being private that allows you to think in this, in this way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our uh, owner, the Chenard family, uh, with Yvonne Chenard, uh, who founded the company, uh, says that as a private company, uh, that gets to me- that means we get to do whatever we want, and and that's a luxury, uh, and we recognize that. Uh, and uh, in fact, I consider it a privilege. Uh, it's also a privilege to work at a company whose uh, owners, whose shareholders, are not interested in in personal wealth out of this. They live pretty simply. And instead, they use the tool, the company as a tool for an environmental change. Uh, that's why Patagonia is in business, actually. Uh, our mission is to implement solutions to the environmental crisis. We, we feel that we're in crisis, uh, that, that that is the word to describe uh, the situation on our planet right now. And the degree to which we can use our company to uh, demonstrate models of how a business can be run successfully and still managed uh, for uh, minimal uh, environmental uh, uh, impacts and for uh, being a tool for philanthropy and still come in with double-digit profit is uh, another uh, area, a way in which we hold our company up as a model. Chipberg, how do you approach that balance? Well, I will jokingly say I still feel the pressure every quarter and every year to deliver the financial results. However, having said that, one of the things that attracted me to this company is the history of the company. The company is 160 years old, and the values of the company that go all the way back to the founding father, Levi Strauss himself. And those values that he had and led the company with, you know, 160 years ago, are the same values that carry through kind of the spine of the company even up to this day. And you can shorthand it into do the right thing. Um, so while sustainability might not have been a word 160 years ago, um, from the very first profits that Levi Strauss made, he was donating money to the local orphanages here in San Francisco. So he as a person were, was always about doing right by the community. You know, the, in the earthquake here in San Francisco, we kept employees on the payroll even after the factory burned down. Uh, I told you the story, what's today the Friends School down the street on Mission uh, was one of the original factories of the company. And during the Depression, when we weren't making a lot of jeans, uh, he put employees to work laying the wood floor that is still the wood floor in that school today. So it is part of the jeans, no pun intended, of this company. And, uh, and it is one of the things that attracted me to the company, and it's one of the things that I think attract and retain a lot of our employees. Um, <clears throat> We also have um, kind of a guiding principle. We call it profits through principle. So it is very consistent with our values about doing the right thing. And we believe as a leader in the industry that we have a responsibility 
not just to our shareholders, but also to the world at large, to our employees, to our consumers, to our customers, and making a positive impact in the world. And when doing the right thing costs more or is harder, how do you manage that tension? Pass that price on to consumers, saying, hey, we're going to use these inputs. They're cleaner. They cost more. That's the consumers ought to bear that cost, or is it the shareholders that ought to share we, that cost? We fundamentally believe that by doing the right thing, ultimately it's going to be good for business. Okay, I, I really do believe that kind of what goes around comes around. One of the stories I love to tell, and Bob is sitting here, so I, I can't resist this opportunity. But there was a story that really appealed to me as I was doing my due diligence on the company. Um, Back now 21 years ago, the company implemented the first terms of engagement. So this was when the apparel industry was starting to outsource all over the world, and there were issues around child labor and health and safety of workers. This company, on its own, established terms of engagement with our suppliers that set a substantially higher bar. And it was risky at the time. Um, But the rest of the industry ultimately followed And when I think about that, when I was doing my homework on the company before I joined, that decision to set a much higher bar for the industry and to set expectations with our suppliers in the industry ultimately impacted millions of workers in this industry. And it was about doing the right thing. And it was good for business. It was more expensive, but ultimately it was good for business. You think that people who buy Levi's jeans know and care about that? Whether they do or don't, some do. And the ones that do know and care about it, it's important to them. Some don't, but as long as they're getting a good quality pair of jeans, they're happy. Uh, Rick Ridgway, mm-hmm. uh, Patagonia's been a leader in transparency. Actually, on your website, there's a, a map of the, the mills and the factories, where they are, the address, et cetera. This is a, quite a controversial thing for companies and consumer product goods. Uh, you know, a lot of them don't want to reveal their suppliers. So that, t- talk about that transparency and, and why that happened. Yeah, it, well, the, it's called the Footprint Chronicles. Um, I suspect some of you are familiar with that on our website at Patagonia.com. But uh, the Footprint Chronicles came out of a need for um, a CSR report. And when I joined the company as a full-time employee seven years ago, I was just given uh, – I, I had to take over a, a process in place to create a first CSR report. That's a uh, corporate social responsibility. Exactly. Uh, a report on our social responsibility uh, initiatives and performance. And uh, so I, I managed the tail end of this, and then it was delivered. And I looked at this thing, and, it, and, and I didn't know what to do with it. It looked just like an annual report for a large publicly traded company. And I went to Yvonne. I said, hey, this thing sucks. I said, I said, you know, first of all, it only tells part of the story, and then it tells it in a way that makes us look like, you know, the, what you call business geeks, uh, talking to Yvonne. And so he agreed, and we put the thing on a shelf, but we still needed that because we're getting asked for it all the time by, by our customers, by uh, the press, very interestingly, every day almost by business schools that wanted to see more about how Patagonia does it. So I didn't know what to do when... Uh, one of my colleagues uh, returned from a trip to Europe where she had a, a little uh, uh, video that five tiny companies making apparel in, in Holland had collaborated to uh, make a videotape of their supply chain that introduced you as their customers to uh, their suppliers all the way up to uh, the farmer in Turkey who was growing the cotton in this little field and it was done with interviews with human beings who talked about their role in the supply chain. 
And I went, that's it. <laughs> it's like the light bulb came on. So we put a team together to uh, create a platform <clears throat> that would allow uh, our customers to uh, go into our supply chain and become acquainted with it through the people that are in the various uh, stops on the life cycle of our products, all the way back to the guys growing the sheep out in the field or the farmers growing the cotton or uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the resource extraction making the synthetic fibers. And then, most importantly, we, in thinking this through, realized that the only way it would truly reflect our own uh, values at the company is if we truly told uh, the story, had those people in the supply chain tell their stories of what was both good and bad with, uh, with that particular waypoint on the evolution of our product. So the Footprint Chronicles, right from the beginning, was dedicated to this idea of the, what we call the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and uh, we, in some of our products, would actually say that, you know, the... The, the tension that you've mentioned before, Greg, between trying to reduce the uh, environmental impact of a product while maintaining its performance is so difficult with this product, and we've erred so much on performance at the cost of environmental footprint that we're not sure we should be making this thing anymore. I mean, the footprint is bad. So what do you think? We would invite our customers to comment on that. that that's and have you ever canceled a product because your customers say, look, this is too big of an impact? Yeah, we've gone back and redesigned uh, products. And I must say, in, again, in full transparency here, that is a tension that goes on every day at our company. Uh, I am confident in saying to my colleague here that it goes on every day at Levi's. There isn't an apparel company in, in the world who doesn't manage themselves for environmental reductions, who also doesn't have to manage that tension that goes on every day. And where do you, where do you draw the line? Well, it's as much art as it is science. Uh, there's no uh, black and white. It's always gray. And uh, we're forevermore trying to manage that. We'd love to do it in, um, in uh, disclosure and dialogue with our customers because some of these issues are so thorny that you just can't do it on your own. You've got to have... Uh, help. You got to have help from uh, the customers, the consumers. You got to have help from the NGOs representing civil society. You got to have help from your cohorts in uh, in other companies. You know, just uh, one other comment on the tension. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I really do believe in is that that tension, that trade-off, is one of the things that can drive real innovation. Um, I'm a big believer that the best innovation happens when there are constraints and when you're forced with the choice. And then how do you figure for the both and? And, um, you know, we are, as we speak right now, we're investing in an innovation center here in San Francisco, right down the street from our headquarters on Battery Street, um, that's going to be really focused on innovation and innovation around a sustainability platform. How do you solve that tension? How do you solve those trade-offs and give the consumer the performance or the quality that they want while reducing its impact in, this, in, in the environment? Chip Berg is CEO of Levi Strauss & Company. Our other guest today at Climate One is Rick Ridgway, Vice President of Environmental Affairs at Patagonia. I'm Greg Dalton. Rick, earlier you mentioned uh, some NGOs, nonprofits. They're often pressuring companies uh, to do more. In December last year, GreenBiz, which is a a website that's generally favorable toward uh, incremental steps that, that countries take uh, regarding their, their practices. Uh, ran a story, the quote, the headline was, quote, 
Levi's Gap not keeping supply chains sustainable, according to, and I guess this is more for Chip, toward, uh, uh, according to a report which cited a, a Greenpeace report on the zero discharge uh, uh, challenge, uh, calling on companies to discharge zero uh, toxic waste by 2020. That same day, Levi's uh, announced, uh, put out a press release that you are going to commit to zero discharge by 2020. So talk about that process and that external pressure from something like Greenpeace. Well, I guess I will start by saying that it was December was an interesting month. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have been working down a path on sustainability and some of the chemistry that Greenpeace had an issue with. And we were already part of a coalition of apparel company, companies committed to eliminating some of these hazardous chemicals by 2020. So we were part of a 2020 roadmap already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, Things about being a big company and a leading brand is you become a lightning rod. And while I may not agree necessarily with all of Greenpeace's tactics, their intent is clearly right. Um, you know, Levi's by itself cannot change the industry. Um, but we as a lightning rod can become a coalition, get other apparel companies to work together. It is a very, very complex issue. Um, it requires us changing the chemical industry. Uh, and changing the entire supply chain to really tackle some of these hazardous chemicals. And what they were asking for is no, none of these difficult or challenging chemicals in any of our suppliers. We also have about 650 suppliers around the world. And in many of these suppliers, we are a minor player. Um, and it's very difficult to impact the entire supply chain in some of these smaller suppliers. But we've made commitments, uh, and, uh, uh, by the end of 2015, we'll be out of PFCs, for example. Um, so we are um, working with Greenpeace to address some of the areas of concern. I was just talking to Michael earlier uh, from our supply chain. He was in Egypt yes, uh, last week, and uh, it's beginning to have an immediate impact on the supply chain. So while I'm, I might not like Greenpeace's tactics, it's definitely having an impact and starting to change the industry. Puma, Nike, Adidas, H&M were among the companies that had already signed on to that zero discharge pledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, where's, I didn't see Patagonia. Is Patagonia also interested in zero discharge? Yes, but not with that group. Um, not the companies, but with Greenpeace. Um, we are, uh, as Levi's uh, is, and uh, the companies you mentioned on that list, uh, founding members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And that group is uh, creating uh, measurement tools that are in place right now in the supply chain, uh, measuring the impacts of uh, things like the toxic chemicals that Chip just uh, mentioned. And uh, the group firmly believes that management begins with measurement. And so that's what it is focused on. And through that measurement, you're able to identify uh, the most egregious hot spots in your supply chain, uh, which include toxics but aren't limited to just toxics. There are many other impacts that require management, uh, and the trick is to strategically focus your resources on the areas where you can get the biggest change for your investment. And we believe that going to zero discharge uh, as soon as possible would be at the cost of management of other areas of uh, impact. And, in fact, we believe that uh, managing towards 80 or 90 percent uh, uh, you know, a zero uh, toxics might actually be a, a better strategy uh, over a fixed uh, timeline while you also apply resources to other 
uh, impacts, uh, other categories of impacts. So that's our, that's our strategy. And we're doing that in full collaboration with uh, this uh, coalition, which I should point out is not only a group of companies, but it includes uh, NGOs, uh, including some of the, the big players uh, representing uh, civil society like NRDC and Environmental Defense Fund and the World Resources Institute. It includes uh, academia with uh, universities leading in life cycle assessment science uh, in the organization. Uh, and it, in, in, it includes governments. So uh, we're in dialogue with the EU and with China and other governments. And in fact, some of those governments have representatives that, that sit in the table as uh, the group tries to solve uh, some of these problems. And it is a culture of collaboration. And we at Patagonia feel that collaborative solutions to these challenges are what uh, are is the best response to the global challenges that all of us face. Those of you out in the room, those of us up here that make the clothes that you wear, uh, we're in this together. Um, and together we need to, in common, find solutions to this. Uh, the, the realization of how important collaboration is to solving these issues uh, came to me almost in an epiphany in 2007 when Patagonia received an invitation from uh, then French President Jacques Chirac to come to the Elsay Palace where the uh, Intergovernmental uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was about to uh, announce uh, their latest findings when, as you may recall, they told the world that the climate is changing, it's getting hotter, and we're causing it. And the next day, all over, well, in, in the palace, as those announcements were made, uh, I looked around the room, four or 500 people, and they were just what I just told you. They were representatives from every constituency of uh, human society on the planet, from its religious leaders to its corporate leaders to its government leaders to the NGOs representing those civil societies. And everybody in that room heard the same thing. They heard the same threats. And collectively, I could tell they were all looking at each other willing to get together to find solutions to this. And collaboration for these solutions is born out of these common threats. And and that's where the opportunity is for all of us. The politics of confrontation belong to the 80s and 90s. I think we're past that. There's still a place for it because you're always going to get companies that are dragging their feet. But you can't label all companies bad guys. It's just we're way beyond that. It is now the time for all of us to get past that and to work together in common to find solutions to common threats. Chipberg, uh, can competitors really collaborate like that? On, on this issue, I think that's the only way we're going to make meaningful progress. It's a necessity. It, it, you know, one company, no matter how big it is, cannot change the world by itself on an issue this complex. The only way it's going to happen is collaboration and recognizing that we're collaborating for the better good. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the basis for competition. One area where the collaboration is happening is on the idea of consumer-facing labels, nutrition labels. And there's some things happening in Europe where the European Union is considering mandating kind of like nutrition-style labels of the water and environmental impacts right. of, uh, of garments and other goods. So how is Levi's anticipating or preparing for that? Well, we actually uh, uh, were one of... The, I, I think we might have been the only apparel company that was part of a test that was run in France last year on a nutrition-type label. 
Um, we are believers in it. You know, it gets back to the point, as you mentioned earlier, about transparency that we've already talked about. And we do believe that the more transparent that the industry can be with consumers, the more consumers will, you know, care about it. Um, the key thing for us is that it be based in science and, um, and that it be scientifically, scientifically grounded as we communicate to the consumer. Um, the test ran for a year. Um, there was learnings coming out of it. I think there's, there's probably another wave or two of testing that needs to be done. And a lot of this has also been done through the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which, which Patagonia led and which uh, Levi's was one of the founding members of as well. So um, there's progress being made. I think it is a question of time before it ultimately happens. Um, but I think it would ultimately be a good thing because of the you know, importance of transparency. And it would be a good thing if the government mandated Oftentimes, companies <coughs> bristle at the idea of uh, government mandates. They want more voluntary approaches. You know, the, the issue if it becomes mandated by a government is every government in the world may mandate something slightly differently, and then you've got chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, this gets back to the coalition, you know, competitors working together to come up with the right solution. If the industry can define what's the right solution from a transparency standpoint, and it's consumer meaningful, and it resonates with the consumer, it'd be better if the industry take the lead on it than be regulated into it. Rick Ridgway, consumer labels? Well, I uh, believe they're inevitable. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in the, the landscape in Europe right now, led by France, but also by the EU, uh, there is legislation in development right now, as Greg said, that uh, will mandate uh, la- labeling like that. And as uh, Chip said, the challenge for us in uh, business is to work with government so the solutions that they end up with that they mandate um, are not necessarily uh, watered down or weakened. In fact, it's very interesting in these conversations that the Sustainable Apparel Coalition in their discussions with the EU is advocating for a very robust measurement of these impacts. But the measurement tool needs to be uh, realistically implementable by the companies that are going to be tasked with uh, and mandated to uh, implement it. And that's where uh, our learnings and our expertise in working in our supply chain is potentially really valuable to uh, government. And I might add as well, it's important all of you understand that uh, even in dialogue with the EU right now, which the uh, Sustainable Apparel Coalition is engaged, it's a, it's a positive dialogue. It is built on a spirit of collaboration. And think about that. That is such a ground shift in uh, our discussions about these issues and how we're going to find solutions to them. But again, I think uh, that, environment, that uh, a consumer-facing uh, label that allows consumers to uh, make to uh, understand the uh, environmental and social labor and health uh, uh, impact of the product, the uh, imp- uh, footprint of the product that they're considering uh, is inevitable, and it also is going to be uh, very useful in achieving these goals that we're all striving for. It can be a major driver towards change. Let's talk about organic. There was a big push toward organic uh, garments uh, a few years ago, and yet companies seem to have pulled back from organics. Levi's discontinued in 2008. Walmart's still selling some, but they seem to have pulled back. Uh, what's the challenge with organic cotton in particular, perhaps other organic garments? Chip Burton? Um, before, yeah. before your time at the company. so Yeah, um, 
Well, our focus is on better cotton as opposed to organic. Um, and I think, you know, organic carries a lot of issues with it, whether it's cotton or lettuce or tomatoes, right? You know, what, what truly is organic? And a lot of consumer confusion around it as well. Um, so we have really shifted our emphasis to better cotton, which is focused on sustainable farming techniques to reduce the use of water in growing cotton. And um, we've been using better cotton. The focus is to continue to increase the amount of better cotton that we uh, that we put into our products over time. And we really think that that's where you're going to get the biggest impact in terms of um, sustainability and impact to the planet. Was organic cotton just too expensive? People weren't willing to pay that premium for it? Um, I'm not sure if it was – it's before my time. I'm not sure if it was really a matter of economics or consumer confusion or is there really a consumer benefit to it. And, in fact, Better Cotton, we're not even marketing it. Um, it's really – we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because we believe by working with farmers to reduce the impact of water consumption and growing cotton that that's the right thing for us to be doing. Um, we're doing that, again, with a coalition of companies. Um, I think organic cotton, ha- as with organic many things, has a lot of consumer confusion and consumer issues with it and probably came at a premium price as well. Rick Ridgeway, organics, not what they're all sold up to be? Uh, no, not entirely. That's, that's re- really true. And we have a long history, our company, with organically grown cotton. that goes back to the early 90s, in 1991, 92, when... Uh, following the principle at our company, which we uh, articulate is to lead and examine life, you know, know the full impact of all your decisions uh, as deeply as you can. We launched a assessment of our fibers at that time, um, a footprint assessment, which was a bit ahead of its time. And uh, when that was delivered, we uh, had assumed that the synthetic fibers in our products were going to be the bad guys and the natural fibers uh, would be the good guys. And it was just the opposite. And uh, the, the, the real... Um, the, the biggest footprint and impact of all was traditionally grown cotton uh, and its use of pesticides and insecticides. So we started to introduce uh, increasing amounts of organically grown cotton uh, at that time into our products. And uh, by 96, uh, that had increased to 20 and 30 and 40 percent. But uh, Yvonne, uh, you know, and I really compliment him for this. He, he went in front of the company and he said, uh, that's not good enough. We've got to convert to 100% organic or grown cotton. And the people in the company pushed back and said, there's not enough organic or grown cotton on the planet to supply our own uh, apparel needs, our own supply chain needs. And he said, I don't care. If we go out of business, I'm not going to be in business of doing evil. It's exactly what he said. So in 96, we made the commitment to 100% organic or grown cotton, and our sales dropped 20%. It almost bankrupted, the, especially the... The, the sports were part of our business. But then our company had to go out and, and actually work with farmers to convert them to organically, organic farming. We had teams out in the field up and down California and in Texas and over in Turkey working with farmers. And it took two years for them to get certified because they got a, you know, there's a, a cycle before you can get certified. So for about three years, we were losing money. And then finally after that, we got back to where we were and then it's been a continual improvement since then. Uh, and we have continued to maintain that commitment to only using organically grown cotton. So where are we now? Organically grown cotton still sucks because of the water issue. And it's a bigger 
problem than the pesticides and insecticides. I mean, you could legitimately argue that, uh, especially as we're all getting more visibility over the diminishing, uh, uh, you know, amount of fresh water left on the planet for our societies. So what are we going to do about that? Well, just as Chip said, you've got to then go back into your supply chain and try to identify those vendors who are growing cotton from rainfall. And so we do. You know, we identify, we get most of our cotton from southern India right now where it's, uh, it's not uh, drawing down an aquifer. It's being irrigated by rainfall. And then we find out that uh, most of that rainfall is being uh, caught in cisterns that have uh, plastic linings and aren't allowing any of the rain to go back into the groundwater, and that's creating more problems. And then we're going, ay, 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 is um, synthetic fiber the solution? And then you start to examine that, and then you've got to do the whole footprint for polyester, but... And we get a closed-loop recycling thing for polyester, so maybe we shift there. I'm just sharing with you guys a little bit of the complexity of what goes behind trying to reach our goal of making our product with no unnecessary harm to this planet that that you guys uh, buy and wear. It is not an easy solution. And, of course, it's just not apparel. It's every consumer good that we buy. Uh, it is a, a pretty... Onerous challenge, isn't not, it? Not simple. Sure is. uh, Rick Ridgway is Vice President of Environmental Affairs at Patagonia. Our other guest today at Climate One is Chip Berg, CEO of Levi Strauss. Let's talk briefly about greenwashing. There's a lot of it out there. Uh, one particular example uh, is there's a Dasani bottle made by Coca-Cola that has up to 30% plant ingredients. So that's like your boss saying you're going to get a raise up to 30%. It might be 1%, but it could be 30%. Uh, how do you look at greenwashing? Is it a problem? Is it just a fact of life? Chip Berg, you're a former marketing guy with Procter & Gamble. I'd like to think I'm still a marketing guy, but... Yeah. Um, okay. uh, no longer with Procter & Gamble. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an issue, um, and I think it's a credibility issue to an industry or to a brand, and it's something that we're very, very careful about. Um, we're doing a lot of good stuff. We've got a lot of innovation coming, and if you want to talk about that, those innovations... Incredibly, you can't be caught in the jaws of greenwashing somewhere else in your company or on your brand. So we're launching, talking about um, plastic bottles and synthetic fibers right now. It, it, it's probably in our stores already. If not, by February 1st, we're selling a product called Wasteless that is made with up to eight recycled bottles built into the fibers of the jeans. And so it's a cotton um, plastic blend, if you will, um, using closed-loop recycling of recycled bottles. And we're marketing it. Um, We can't market that if we're blowing smoke somewhere else. And so it really is the brand or the company's responsibility to make sure that they're being fully, you know, full of integrity in their marketing and in their claims as they um, go forward, you know, to try to use sustainability. Consumers are smart, you know, and this is the world of the Internet. And you try to stretch a claim too far, you're going to be called on it, and it'll be global like that because of the Internet. So integrity uh, is the underpinning of most brands. And, you know, one of the things that the Levi's brand really has is the trust of its consumers, and we just will not let ourselves get caught in a position where there's any greenwashing. And it's an, indus- you know, it's an industry issue. If somebody, somebody else does, 
it causes a question mark around all brands. There's some famous examples. Sig was a Swiss company that makes bottles, and they caught caught with BPA in the linings of their bottles, and the CEO was fudging on it. So right. the cost of that sort of thing can be really uh, harmful to a brand. Rick? Oh, that, that was a bad one for us because uh, Sig had just joined uh, the group that we uh, – chartered called 1% for the Planet, where companies give 1% of their sales back to environmental groups. And Yvonne came out with an ad uh, standing next to the CEO of SIG, uh, lauding them for their 1% for the Planet uh, position the day that broke wow. the ad hit. Timing's everything. <laughs> oh, like we sent a strike force out there to try to find all the magazines and buy them back. <laughs> <laughs> it was too late. <laughs> Can't do but, that in um, the age of the Internet. On greenwashing, we always remember what Mark Twain reminded us, that the, the cool thing about telling the truth is that you never have to re- try and remember what you said. <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in that. But for us, it's all it circles back to um, how you define transparency. And for us, transparency is defined by our footprint chronicles. And you... Uh, pledge uh, to tell everything you know to your customers to open the kimono and let them know the good, the bad, and the ugly, to use the phrase I cited before. Uh, That's what, to us, transparency is. We um, uh, hope uh, that the Footprint Chronicles uh, holds uh, that up as an example of that. And, uh, you know, if you do that, you're protected from... uh, getting into position where you might be charged with uh, greenwashing. Um, when I joined the company as a full-time employee uh, seven or eight years ago, even though I've been associated with them from the beginning as a contract employee, and Yvonne and I are climbing partners for 45 years now, uh, but when I started full-time, I was given the charge of um, taking over the environmental uh, department, but also creating a marketing department. Uh, Interestingly enough, Patagonia didn't really have an organized marketing department even that recently. And then to see if there was a way to to tell more actively the company's commitment to, uh, as the mission statement says, implementing solutions to environmental crisis without greenwashing. And the company had up till then really refused to tell its own stories, uh, anything but kind of a cursory high level for fear of people misunderstanding uh, what the motivation of the company was. And uh, I thought about that for a while and realized that, uh, you know, we're in kind of a unique position, as I said before, being a privately held company that's in business to find solutions to this environmental crisis, that if we give 1% uh, of our sales away to environmental groups, and then what's left over, which is a double-digit profit, goes into a foundation that further goes to environmental groups to where we're gifting uh, 10 to 15 to $20 million a year back into the environmental community, and that's why you're in business, you're pretty bulletproof from greenwashing. Because if somebody says, oh, you did that really clever, don't buy this jacket ad, so people would buy more jackets, you can say, well, maybe they do buy more jackets. We hope it's our jackets because they last a long time. If you keep them forever, you've reduced your footprint. That's cool. We uh, succeed as a business. But at the same time, as we succeed, we just give more back. So we're pretty bulletproof from greenwashing. <laughs> but you don't sell bulletproof vests. Okay, so the... Uh, Not yet. We're going to uh, invite your participation and put a a microphone right here. 
And if you're on this side, uh, we invite you to please go to the door over there. Our producer, Jane Ann, it's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Jane Ann. Um, and uh, we'll put the microphone here. Invite your one, one-part question or comment. Uh, the short ones are the ones that get included. If they're too long, we cut them out. A little secret there. Um, so while that line is uh, forming... Okay, let's have audience question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Hi. Hi, thank you very much. I'm Patricia Jerowitz, Director of the Responsible Sourcing Network, and I want to thank both Levi's and Patagonia for signing our pledge not to purchase Uzbek cotton, as much as you know, since they forced children to pick cotton, but they've also drained the Aral Sea about 85%. What do you recommend to for the apparel industry to address conventional cotton? I know better cotton's out there, organic cotton's there, but there's still majority of conventional cotton using the pesticides, water, and abusive labor practices are there. So from the point of spinners, collaboration, do you have other ideas on what we can do? Thank you. We'd like to tackle that one. I'll, I'll try it. First, good to see you, Patricia. And I think that uh, a partial solution lies in uh, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition's uh, effort to build this, what is branded the HIG Index, which measures the, the impact of much of what you're talking about. And through measurement brings transparency to some of the issues uh, that traditionally grown cotton create, uh, some of the impacts that they create on our on our planet and its limited resources. Uh, so again, uh, I would uh, say that our, our effort to uh, manage those impacts, beginning with measurement, beginning with shining a real spotlight on uh, you know all those uh, impacts as fully as we can, is is a, a great place to start. And we're well on our way. I would agree with that. The other thing I would add is the better cotton movement is now you know it's still in its I would call it its formative years, and I think there's an awful lot that we can learn from it and then pour that learning back into the industry um, to the extent that we can continue to advance the better cotton movement, if you want to call it that, and get more of the world's cotton grown using those sustainable farming practices, um, that that is you know, part of the journey. So the learning from what we've got already and then reapplying those learnings more broadly. We've got about 13 minutes left. Let's get to as many questions as we can. Yes, welcome. Which, welcome. Great. Uh, this question is for Chip and um, I'm interested in Levi's strategies for adaptation to climate change. So in 2010, you had major drought in western China and the worst flooding in 80 years in Pakistan, and that led to a tripling of prices of cotton over the historical norms. And I know it hit everybody in the industry, but yep. you're particularly exposed with so much dependence on cotton. So how are you guys dealing with these macro effects at a global level? What are your strategies for adaptation? So um, climate change is obviously a huge deal for us. I mentioned earlier that 95% of our product is made with cotton. So we are incredibly exposed, you know, from a financial standpoint to cotton. And if you project the world's um, population growth and you project how many genes we might be selling in 20 years, there, there might not be enough cotton, right? So there are two things, I guess really two vectors that we're working um, one is we ourselves are very committed to climate change and reducing, you know, greenhouse gas. So we've made public commitments to that effect. Um, two years ago, I think, we committed to an 11 percent reduction in the areas that we control. We just reported out that we actually exceeded that and delivered about a 13 percent reduction in greenhouse gas. We're now setting a higher bar as we go forward in the future. So 
we're doing what we can do within our own control uh, on greenhouse gas and sustainability from that standpoint. The other thing I mentioned earlier, you know, we're looking at alternative um, sources. So how do we blend, and I call it formula flexibility, going back to my days in the coffee business, how do we reduce our reliance on cotton in the event that cotton's not available or we can't get the kind of cotton that we need? So things like wasteless, where we're actually tapping into another great source of fibers with recycled plastic bottles and building up those kind of capabilities. So we're really kind of approaching it from both standpoints strategically. Will I am is part of the, the plastic fiber. It is indeed. Yeah, that, is, that makes it cool. Um, the, it does make uh, it cool. It does make it does makes everything cool. Uh, there's a cool video out there, sort of cradle to cradle. Yep. Um, so Rick Ridgeway, Patagonia is actually looking at selling fewer winter jackets in a warmer world. That's going to affect your business in a fundamental way. Yeah, it probably will, and and not and not just ours. I think it's going to affect business in a fundamental way. Um, I I believe that uh, that. Uh, Innovation only provides a partial solution uh, to this uh, overuse of the world's limited resources and uh, only a partial solution to reversing uh, the indicators of the health of the planet that all continue to go in the wrong direction. That in addition to uh, innovative technology that reduces the footprint of stuff, that the amount of stuff that's made and used on the planet is going to have to go down. Uh, it's the only way, only those two things in combination will uh, reverse the indicators. Uh, that's what, at our company, we believe. We are trying to get our heads around right now what that means for business, what it means for uh, the global economy. Um, and it is a challenging thing to consider. Uh, there's nobody out there that can look into the crystal ball and predict uh, with any clarity uh, what capitalism is going to look like if it's no longer based on growth. Uh, now, I may have gone to a little bit of a different topic in answering your question, but yet fundamentally, those are the challenges that we're all facing. Uh, business as usual on the planet uh, is not going to cut it. Uh, capitalism based on growth uh, is not sustainable. Uh, how do you solve that problem? And we've done programs on that. If you listen to the Climate One podcast on iTunes, there's some programs there with Paul Gilding and some other authors talking about some of the things that the Club of Rome brought up uh, in the 1970s. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'm Linda Gross with the Sustainable Cotton Project and with California College of the Arts. And thanks very much for being so transparent with your businesses and so on. And it's great to hear about these potentially new business models of not based on growth. Um, but I'm going to just circle back to cotton because um, SCP or Sustainable Cotton Project has been involved in California with Patagonia you know, for many years, decades, really. And um, I just wanted to take up the issue of organic being used as a tool as opposed to an end goal. And it, it seems like the industry is focused on organic as being that's where we need to be. And yet you've, you've touched a little bit on, on the picture is much bigger than that. And in California, we're finding that cleaner cotton is more scalable and actually reduces more chemicals. And so I wanted to ask both companies, actually, because they just the it's not just about changing materials, is it? We're talking about changing culture as well. And changing the culture of agriculture in California is enormously difficult. And it's happening. It's happening through cleaner cotton. And so how, you know, how can we persuade you to come back to California now that the Samokin River is flowing into our bay again and all those chemicals that are used coming into our bay? How can we persuade you, California companies, to tap into California resources? 
Yeah, well, that's where we started. It would be wonderful to go back. So we're, we're open to uh, in, any suggestions about how we can do that. And I don't, Melinda, I don't know if you're in dialogue with our teams right now, but I certainly invite you to, to uh, begin the conversation with us because we, we definitely have an interest in that. Uh, if together, working together, we can figure out how to do it. Chip Bird, more California cotton? I mean, talk to us, absolutely. This company started right here in San Francisco, and it's still our home. And uh, if there is an opportunity that makes sense for our business, we will definitely take it on. Particularly with a water-constrained future. You yep. mentioned cotton. A lot of people think of water. Should it be even grown in California? Let's have our next question. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, Liz Muller, and I would like to ask a little bit about tension, as you mentioned, and about traceability and bringing all of that information to a consumer who many of you in the room know me don't believe that they're going to act with that information to benefit the cost that went into gathering and tracking that information through your extraordinarily complex supply chain at a time where my personal belief is that effort, resources, funding can go straight to agriculture where we know 70% of that water where we know you need to have raw materials, where we know the bigger social and environmental impacts and opportunities are. So what thought goes into your balancing traceability versus impact and helping farmers farm better? We'd like to tackle that one. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty complex issue. Um, you know, I think uh, the day will probably come where traceability will be ultimately important to the consumer. I don't think the consumer is there today. Um, what do you exactly mean by traceability? What does that mean? Going all the way back, you know, wanting to know where was the cotton for these genes grown. So That's kind of what you're asking, right? This particular the, garment, the, 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 yeah, uh, right. the, the idea that <clears throat> these genes were started in Pakistan yeah, that, and they went to China and they came Well, the, no, even further back than okay. that, that the cotton for these genes was grown in this particular field, in this particular ah, country, real, in this okay. particular state. Real green, Potentially, okay. all the okay. way back to that, okay. that level. Um, you know, and I would say that's a huge investment for any company to take on, and unless there's consumer pull for it, you're not going to see con- companies invest there um, versus investing in places where you know you're going to make an impact on um, the community and the planet. Um, and that's where most of the investment that we're making, whether it's better, better cotton or any of the other things, is geared towards um, trying to build sustainability into everything that we do. Um, if traceability becomes a meaningful consumer um, need and consumers start demanding it, there are ways to do it. But, um, you know, I don't think the consumer is there. I mean, even the test coming out of France, the interest in the nutrition labeling on carbon impact is kind of 50-50 almost. I mean, so the consumer still has a journey to make before the comp- before companies are going to make a major investment in something like traceability. And even on food, some people would debate whether nutrition labels on food. Some people read them, a lot of people don't, right? You know, have have they been effective, right? And Yeah, don't uh, get me started. <laughs> okay. I could spend a lot of time on that one too. Sure. Having okay. worked in the food business for a big part of my life. Uh as we uh, about to to wrap up here, I want to ask you about your own personal carbon footprint. What have you done in your own life? Uh, to reduce your own impact, uh, whether it's you're running the corporate jets on uh, French fry grease or wh- whatever it is. Um, 
Chipper? First of all, no corporate jets, so we can start there. Okay. Um, I, I actually, I've learned a lot in the 18 months that I've been in this job, and, and probably some of the biggest impacts have been the things that I've been doing to manage my own wardrobe and my own um, apparel choices, if you will. Um, so I mentioned, you know, I'm not washing my jeans nearly the way that I used to. Um, I'm much more conscious about what I'm doing with my jeans if I decide to remove them from my closet and they go somewhere else. So I'm donating my jeans either to Goodwill or to one of the charities that comes around the neighborhood periodically. So I'm much more conscious there. Um, the other thing is I, I am now walking as much as I possibly can. So um, I don't walk to work yet. But um, I have been keeping track of how far I walk now every day. You got one of those so, little meters that measures your steps. Ah, okay. Nike Fuel Band. Nike Fuel Band. Okay. And it keeps track of my steps. So, um, so I've I've been you know really trying to be much more conscientious about about those kind of things. But the biggest thing has been something near and dear to my heart, which is trying to live what we're trying to engage consumers in in a two-way dialogue around the life cycle of the product that's sitting in your in your closet and how to have less of an impact on the planet as you maintain your closet. And we're talking about clothing here. And most people, if you ask carbon experts, clothing wouldn't come up in the top, the carbon impacts. Mm-hmm. It's sort of what you eat, what you drive, mm-hmm. and clothing is, is part of that. Well, the other thing, I mean, you and I were talking. I'm, I'm a vegan, and so and I try to buy locally grown, um, you know, locally grown produce, largely at farmer's markets to support the local community here. Yeah, and meat is the biggest impact a lot of people have. Rick Ridgway, how about your personal um, carbon footprint? You know, first I'll deflect the question just for a second to say that uh, Yvonne, my buddy. um, Yvonne Chenard, the the owner and founder of Patagonia. Yeah, he likes to tell people that uh, he may have this really green company that's doing a lot of change, but when it comes to your personal carbon footprint, uh, driven in his case by travel, he's still going straight to hell. (laughs) <laughs> and we're, we're, I'm probably in the same category. Uh, and travel's the big one. Yeah. It, we, we still have to do so much of it uh, to um, affect the changes that we're trying to make. And, 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 and what a dilemma that is. Um, and uh, as much as we try to have, you know, use technology for conference calls and all that, you still got to be there to read body language, to do the little, you know, interpersonal stuff that, achieve, that gets the results that you need as you're trying to lower... Uh, the footprint of um, business on the planet. So, whew, what a conundrum that is. Uh, personally, I'm trying to uh, dis- decrease my own consumption. Uh, you know, I'm wearing my pants longer, uh, like you are, and you know, my wife nice, so far. Yeah, she hasn't pushed back too much. I, I, I may be <laughs> kind of pushing the limit on that a little bit. Uh, and I'm also trying to get our family and me to just use less stuff, to buy less stuff. Uh, I really think that is um, uh, one of the biggest opportunities we have uh, for uh, personally lowering our, our footprints. Are you both hopeful we're going to make it? Going to get it done? Well, on that topic, my friend David Quammen, do you guys know David? He's a, a writer that uh, writes on environmental issues. Um, you know, as, as you look at all these challenges uh, that we're facing, it, it's really easy to get into a funk. And it's really easy to get pessimistic. And, and I guess if I really think about it enough, I, I do kind of get pessimistic, and I think, can we really figure this out? But as David said, you know, the, the, you know, the, the trouble with despair as a response uh, is that not only does it offer no solutions and is it useless, but it also isn't any fun. So let's be optimistic. Let's 
commit to collaboration. Let's work together uh, to find these solutions, and let's just cross our fingers we pull it off. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer that um, the status quo is the worst place to live, right? So, and that there, there are only two ways to go. You either get better or you get worse, and that's in anything. It's in your own personal life. It's in your relationships. It's in your job. It's whatever. And so I believe that things are getting better. Um, will we ever get to the end state? I don't think there is an end state here. I think this is about constantly continuing to set a higher bar and challenging ourselves as a company and ourselves as an industry to continue to tackle the toughest problems and to continue to make progress against them. And I think we are making progress. And we have to end it on that note. Our thanks to Chip Berg, CEO of Levi Strauss and Company, and Rick Ridgway, Vice President of Environmental Affairs at Patagonia. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to Climate One today.